Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. This podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools and works with HTML5, Node, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, Sass, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Closure Compiler. Check it out at jetbrains.com slash Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 71 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey. Aaron Frost. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest, and that is Scott Hanselman. Hello. Um, Since you're new to the show, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Um, My name is Scott Hanselman. You can learn more about me on the internet uh, by Googling for Scott. Um, I'm in an epic battle right now with the Scott toilet paper people. Uh, so you'll find me just below Scott Toilet Tissue. And uh, I've been blogging for 10 years, more than 10 years, 13 years. I work at Microsoft right now. Uh, before that, I worked in finance at a company called Carillion that is now Fiserv. So I've been building big systems on the web for you know as long as the web's been around. Wow. So w- what do you do at Microsoft? So I work in Azure and Web Tools. So I'm a program manager, so I'm kind of in charge of the experience from kind of file new project till deployment. I call myself the PM of miscellaneous. So <laughs> I, spend, I spend time kind of going through that experience, making sure that it doesn't suck. My focus is on web tools, but also uh, ASP.NET runtime and what the experience is when you deploy something into Azure. So that might be everything from... You know, what's it like editing JavaScript in Visual Studio? And I'll, I'll find some issue and, and go and work with the guys that own that. Or it might be someone's trying to do something in Node on Azure and that experience is not good. So I'm kind of like a, uh, an ombudsman or a customer liaison. But the simplest way would be to say, like, I'm the community PM, the community program manager for web tools at Microsoft. Okay. Cool. So is JavaScript kind of your primary focus or? I would say that my primary focus is just anything that makes the web better and moves the web forward. While I work for ASP.NET and do a lot of, you know, most of my work is in C Sharp, because applications have a foot on the server and a foot on the client, I've been doing a lot of uh, talks and thinking about where JavaScript fits into the, the world going forward. Like, like, are we in the middle of some epic shift where JavaScript's going to do all the work and the server is just going to return JSON? Or is there a reason to render HTML on the server, you know? Yeah. So I would love to hear uh, your thoughts about that very topic. I mean, I've got a lot of, I've been thinking about that same thing a lot. So I'd love to hear your, your talks. I, I, I was a C-sharp primarily developer, and over the last few years I switched to be pretty much 100% front-end. Mm-hmm. Because I have some pretty strong thoughts about what is going to be happening in the next five years. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that, Scott. Sure. Well, I, I gave a talk at uh, at Build, which is our big uh, developer conference. This is the one this year that we're, we we announced uh, Windows 8.1. And at that talk, I did a thing called angle brackets and curly braces, and uh, it was basically a discussion of where is the virtual machine, where is the CPU, 
workload right now? Because I hear a lot of people say, you know, hey, we run a web farm and we've got about 10 machines in the farm and it just can't handle the load. We're going to need to buy an 11th machine. And then you talk to them and they'll say something like, well, we've got 10,000 people hitting the site. And I'll think to myself, okay, you have 10 machines in the farm and you have 10,000 people hitting the sites and all those people have quad processors, even if they have a phone. Are those processors really working hard? I mean, you've got 40,000 unused processors just kind of sitting there and they're waiting for your 10 processors to give them angle brackets. You know, what if you gave them curly braces and let them do the work? It's amazing uh, how often people will send angle brackets back and forth across the web, even to do something basic like a sort or a filter. So I think we have a lot more virtual machines available to us than we are actually using. That's such, an, that's such a cool way to put that. Yeah, I like the thought behind the distributed computing using your, your client's CPU. That's a good paradigm. Are, are there paradigms, though, where you would want the logic or some other um, function on the backend server? Well, I think that it comes down to what your client is able to handle and what it's able to manipulate comfortably. Uh, five years ago, maybe six years ago, we would, it would be very common to see someone make a query, do a postback, and then have a, uh, a bunch of data sent across as HTML, then hit like a header of that table, do another postback, and then sort that data. And that was because JavaScript wasn't sophisticated enough and browsers were not sophisticated enough and there was a little bit of a question about how powerful the user's machine was to do something like a sort. But today, you could send a quarter million records across the wire as uh, JSON and, and sort that comfortably. Yep. So the, the only other question I have uh, related to what you may or may not want to run on the front end on JavaScript is uh, security. So if, if there's some algorithm that you want to keep proprietary or anything like that, is there concern about putting that into JavaScript and shipping it up to the browser? Well, I think y- yes and no. I mean, e- even, as, even as recently as four years ago, we saw things like Action Tech routers do their password hashing on the client side and send the hash across the wire. So I think that there are algorithms that are security-related that one could do. But it is true, though, that if you put your stuff out, if you put your intellectual property out as JavaScript, minified or not, there is certainly no expectation of uh, privacy or um, expectation of intellectual property protection. So, yeah, that, that's a good opportunity to use a web service and make the back end a black box. Yeah, I mean, th- those are really the only uh, things that I could think of that, you know, are reasons that you might want to do the work on the back end. So I- I'm, I'm a little bit curious then, does Microsoft in uh, ASP.NET or some of the other frameworks um, provide good ways of doing this? I-, I know that some of my friends who do a lot of .NET uh, web development tend to use like built-in widgets or whatever that kind of abstract away a lot of this. I'm just wondering uh, how Microsoft handles that. Okay, so for people who are not familiar, I'll give you the two-minute history of what we're doing and and what what direction that things are moving. So 10 years ago, for people who... And see, the thing is, sometimes if you say something as simple as 10 years ago, uh, you'll lose some of your audience, right? So for (laughs) for, for some JavaScript developers, 10 years ago, they were 15. 
10 years ago or 12 years ago when ASP.NET first came out, the, the, the state of the art for software development was dragging a button from a toolbox onto a design service. So you would pull a button over and drop it onto a design service and you'd double click on the button and you would get like a button dot click. And that kind of event driven programming with components abstracting away complexity was how you did things in Visual Basic. ASP.NET web forms you know, whether it be appreciated or not appreciated or maligned or not maligned, moved the web forward by bringing the web to a whole chunk of people who simply couldn't have have done what they wanted to do. It added a layer of abstraction where it took stateless HTTP and turned it into a stateful event model. And that was revolutionary and crazy and out of this world and productive in 2002. Fast forward to today... It may not be appropriate, and it certainly is a layer of, of information hiding that's not appreciated. So then ASP.NET MVC came out, which is kind of like the .NET Rails, and that hides nothing. Uh, it embraces HTTP, and it lets people do whatever they want at whatever level they choose to. So now ASP.NET developers can pick from a kind of a line-of-business corporate component event-driven model with web forms, or a, you know, down on the metal, even, you know, low level model view controller style with MVC. But then moving forward even more to do client side development, what you really need is a way to get JSON across the wire really, really fast. So our JSON serializer sucked for a number of years. This is a serializer that turned C sharp into JSON. So around the time when we open sourced most of ASP.NET, and right now ASP.NET MVC, uh, Web API, our identity stuff, it's all open sourced and you can go and watch the Git uh, commits and check it out. Around the time that we open sourced all that stuff, we swapped out our JSON serializer for a thing called JSON.NET. So it's an open source JSON serializer from a guy named James Newton King. And this is also around the time when we started shipping jQuery, jQuery UI, Modernizer, and then even now we're going to ship Bootstrap. So there's a lot of open source in, in MVC and ASP.NET, and it itself is open source. So then we made a thing called ASP.NET Web API, and this, is, this takes you even lower level. So you can kind of imagine us going from high-level abstracted web forms, moving down a level MVC, going down a level even further to Web API, and, and you're getting faster and faster and faster as you're doing this. You're getting lighter and lighter weight. You're making your server do more and more work. And you're pushing more and more of that work uh, over to the, the, the client. So if you were going to go and return some JSON from the server to the client, you could do it in web forms. You could do it with a control, but you wouldn't want to do that. It's way too much overhead. Mm-hmm. Just get the JSON across the wire and handle your business. So... Web API is, you know, pushes all that historical system.web, ASP.NET emotional baggage out of the way. And we've even got it set up where you can do what's called self-hosting. So just like a node where you can, you don't need Apache, you can just, node will return the JSON itself. Or if you want to have like a Windows service return uh, the JSON without IIS being involved at all, you can do that too. And we're continuing to move lower and lower down. So we want to have like a slider bar where someone can decide how much information and how much architecture do they want to hide from themselves. And it's a balance between raw power at the low level and 
uh, raw productivity and line of business type applications at the high level. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. One question that I do have about the approach, though, is that I found that at certain, because because I've worked at various levels. Um, I'm a Ruby developer mostly, and so mm-hmm. I've I've worked at different levels. You know, Rails, and you know, Rails has a lot of that stack, that deep stack that right. you're talking about. And then exactly. you can move over to uh, Sinatra, which has mm-hmm. less stack. You could go all the way down to Rack, which is just basic return web response stuff. Yes, yes. Let, let me pause you right there. You're exactly right. So Rails is like MVC. That's the mm-hmm. big framework. And then Sinatra is like Web API. And we also have a Sinatra clone called Nancy, mm-hmm. as in Nancy Sinatra. And then Rack, uh, on your side, we have a thing called Owen, O-W-I-N. So we, we have, um, you know, and this isn't, this is just like computer science, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, there, there's, there's some cloning going on. Like, like obviously Nancy is just like Sinatra. But this is the way that things are moving industry-wide, not just Rails and MVC, but right. you can find corollaries to all this and other technologies. Yeah, it's basically uh, how much of a factory do you need, I guess. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, people crap on web forums, but you know, if, if your job is to get a grid of data up and get some charts and graphs and make a dashboard for your boss and he wants it done in a week, you know... Web forms, like or like it or not, is ridiculously productive. You know. Yep. So Scott and you know Charles, at one point you had said um, talk about security and, and talk about maybe that's the only other reason you could think of to do things uh, on the server side. But um, and Scott, when I oh asked, no, I can, I can think of others. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sure. I can too. Scott, you were talking about uh, um, sending brackets versus um, uh, curly braces, right? Angle brackets versus curly braces and stuff. And I was asking you about, you know, the direction of the of the web, the way that it's heading. And one of the things that has been on my mind a lot, basically, has been, and you just you just talked about it. It's the cost of web development, right? Yeah. So server side web development has just always been a lot cheaper. I mean, overall, cheaper, usually cheaper to get out the door and then cheaper to maintain over time. And so when we see, you know, JavaScript and the role that JavaScript has had in the web uh, over the last 10 years, 15 years, as it has come from doing little tiny things um, to, you know, now, now people are building full entire applications. I don't, I don't know if you've heard before, but uh, here at Domo, we've got a, an application with 100,000 lines of JavaScript code, you know, and no service oh, yeah. HTML. Sure, that's, sure. that's Par for the course nowadays. So, um, I was curious what your thoughts are about the costs of doing development in, you know, on the client side and how that's changing and how that might change in the future through, you know, better tooling and stuff. Well, I think that there's, there's education first, right? There are people who have been doing that work for the last five years. So if someone is a new developer, they've got five years experience, except their five years experience is only with client side stuff. You know, they're probably going to be really productive because they don't have the emotional baggage of the previous 15 years. <laughs> they're not, I like you know that. What I, mean? I mean, they're not thinking of like the psychic weight of tables and they're not going to obviously go and make like dividus and have like divs and spans and just a mess because that's just simply how they did stuff. And they're not even going to think about a table with a one pixel transparent GIF as a solution because it never existed in their world. Right. So there's an education factor. 
uh, there's, there's a comfort. I think there's a lot of corporate developers. I call them dark matter developers because they make up a large part of the universe, but we can't prove that they exist. And dark awesome. matter developers, they're not on Twitter. They're not on Facebook. They work at the Nebraska Department of Forestry and they maintain an, you know, an access database and an ASP.NET app. And all the startup people in the Bay Area think that they, you know, they either don't exist or that they suck. But when they go and they pay their power bill or their water bill, they're talking to one of these apps made by one of these developers. And they might be thinking, well, why don't they just upgrade? Well, they have an app that works, you know, and they're very productive in that environment. So there's an education factor. But then to Joe's point, there's also the tooling. And there isn't yet, I think, a, a, a perfect kind of integrated seamless experience. I don't know about you guys, but I spend a lot of time in Chrome tools. I spend a lot of time editing CSS and getting everything right in Chrome tools. And then I wish that I could push that back from the, the live DOM in Chrome tools into my CSS. But I don't. I have to go and copy paste it from the property window back and forth. You know, That's just one example. I'll do like debugging and get the JavaScript just right, or I'll go and do a bunch of stuff inside of an immediate window and then wonder how am I going to get that back over into my, my, you know, the JavaScript in my IDE. So right now we're building applications in a very decoupled way with a bunch of kind of collections of applets and tools that we find useful. So I think we are all as an industry moving in a direction, but uh, is that direction kind of one IDE to rule them all, or is it everyone doing all their work in Vim and Tmux, or is it everyone doing their work in the browser inside of Cloud9? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I have Sublime Text pinned to my taskbar, and next to it is Visual Studio, because there are things you can do in one that you can't do in the other. So I, I don't believe in religious zealotry. I believe in, you know, getting stuff done. And I, I want to get it done in whatever tool is available to get me done. And if that's Brackets or, or Sublime or if it's Visual Studio, I'll, I'll use the tool I want to, get, want to use. So um, yeah. what, about, what about the role of uh, libraries and frameworks? And specifically, you know, Microsoft has made a few choices already to kind of promote certain libraries and jo- JavaScript-specific libraries and frameworks. And they, they've, picked a, they've picked a couple of horses that are only one of the horses in the, in the race, right? Like so, what? Well, for example, they're delivering Knockout. Uh, mm, we deliver Knockout in the single, in the in the, in the Spa stuff. Right. But we also make it Spa uh, single page applications. But it's Knockout super lightweight, and we don't use it by default. And there's no tooling or requirement that one has to use it. So sure. we we've picked Knockout in one example because it has an MVVM way of thinking, and that's not as a way to promote. JavaScript or force JavaScript developers to use Knockout, but that's a way to make Silverlight developers who don't have a, an option necessarily on the web if it doesn't include Silverlight to move their knowledge of the model view view model framework over to the best, if not the only JavaScript framework that really thinks about things in terms of MVVM rather than MVC. Right. So that brings up another interesting question then. Um, is Microsoft doing anything um, with other frameworks, like MVC frameworks are obviously a big rage going on right now. You know, you've got Backbone that's been around forever uh, in web terms, of course. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and Knockout yeah, uh, came on the scene and did the first real wide mainstream two-way binding. And then now Ember and Angular or, 
duking it out. So, and then there's a you know there's a million others on top of mm-hmm. that. Is Microsoft doing anything besides just delivering knockout to, um, or are they just kind of observing the MVC race and trying to be as compliant as you know as integratable as possible? Yeah. So I'm I'm speaking for me. I'm not a like a sure. spokesman. Sure. Uh, of, of Microsoft, I'm just a guy uh, with a microphone. So. Uh, I'm sure someone could tell me that I'm lying, but here's what I here's what I think. So I don't know if you. you that sounds like you didn't see the keynote at Build this year, but I, I I used Ember to build an app on stage at the keynote, and then we've also built Angular JS IntelliSense into both Visual Studio 2012 and 2013. So you can type ng dash and get IntelliSense for all the all the stuff in Angular. We're not going to pick one. Unless a MVC framework on the client side comes out and wins with the kind of decisive victory of like a jQuery, right? I mean, like, like, like yeah. the, Moo, the Moo tools guys can complain or not, but jQuery won, right? Yeah. yeah. They, won, they won like Oprah won. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, Maury Povich and can complain that maybe he's a valid option as well, but he's just not because Oprah won. Um, that has not happened in MVC yet. Right. There's Angular, there's Ember, there's Backbone, and on and on and on. But it's still it's still a couple three or four horse race. Until there's a decisive victor, I think that it's better for Microsoft to support the web and let the web decide. I don't think it's appropriate for us to throw our weight behind one. No, we threw our weight, you know, we threw our weight, quote unquote, weight behind mo- modernizer because it solved a problem unlike anything else. Right. We threw our weight behind jQuery because it won. Right. So I'm not going to ask you which one you would think, but do you think there will be an MVC winner, or do you think we'll continue to see the large uh, number of uh, MVC frameworks on JavaScript from your perspective? <laughs> Let me tell you a story. So. <laughs> uh, I was working at this finance company. I was a chief architect of a company that does retail online banking software. And this was about ten, nine or 10 years ago. And as the chief architect, I have to kind of make decisions about company direction from a technical perspective and make sure that it fits within my architectural values. And there was a, a young man who wanted to, uh, who didn't like the, the calendar control that came with, uh, with ASP.NET. And he says, you know, I really want to uh, to use this other calendar control. And I said, well, okay, what is it you're planning on doing? And he says, well, I'm going to write a way better calendar control. And I said, okay, so your job right now is to set it up so people can transfer money from point A to point B for retail online banks all over the world, but you want to make a calendar control. And he says, yeah. And I said, have you looked at any third-party options? Well, you know, there's this one you can buy for like $400. And I said, okay, well, you have four hours to write the greatest calendar control in the world because you're $100 an hour, and you told me that you can buy one for 400 bucks. so you have four hours. If you can solve this problem in four hours, great. Otherwise, we're going to buy a widget. And that was insensitive of me, and it shut the argument down very quickly. But later on, months later, I realized that building new kinds of plumbing and inventing new kinds of plumbing is way more fun than being a plumber. So Joe asks, is there going to be a winner or not? Well, if the focus of the web was on productivity, yes, there would be a winner. We would pick the most productive one and we would all use it. But if the focus of the web is building crazy stuff for no other reason than because we can do it, 
And if building and inventing new stuff is more fun than snapping Lego pieces together, then, then no, we're never going to have an answer because some 25-year-old is always going to have a better idea. That's such a, that's a, that was a great story yeah. uh, and great moral. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, one, th- one thing I do uh, wonder about a little bit, though, is that if we all picked the one tool and went with it, doesn't that uh, make it hard to innovate new uh, solutions? In but some see, that's, that's where it comes down, like, what is innovation? And if you think about it from an economics perspective, innovation and software exist in order to make money and move business forward. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that in, like, an evil capitalist way, but I'm just talking about, like, economic theory. Sometimes I think developers of all ages forget why they're making software. And I think there's basically three kinds of software. There's software that makes the business happen. There's academic software, like scientific software, that's like, you know, I'm trying to figure out a new way to sequence the genome because I'm a scientist. And then there's because it's crazy. You know, and if you have like, you know, programming languages like Befunge that have no academic value of any kind but it's awesome just because it's awesome that's great you know but when you sit down and you write some software you have to ask yourself what kind of problem am i trying to solve here right like when when dhh and friends wrote rails they had a business problem and that problem was make basecamp better and make it so they could productively iterate on basecamp it was basecamp a toy no, it was a product that they were making money on, and he races Formula One race cars because he's rich, because he made money. People didn't hand him money for making rails. He used rails and made stuff and made money. So my point here is that when you are trying to write software, if it's the next great JavaScript framework or the next great calendar control, you have to ask yourself, does this move my goal forward? Is it saving babies from cancer or supporting this doctor because I'm writing the back-end system for that thing. And you have to then control your urge to go and do the crazy, write the new calendar widget, and instead write the most productive, high-quality, testable software that that person is going to need. Software people are support engineers, and I think we often lose sight of supporting the business. That's a, that's a great, great point. I would say that when you said at first, you know, do, do people, uh, do programmers forget why, you know, they're programming? My response to that would be, no, we all think we're programming for fun. Mm-hmm. We just disagree with our employers. <laughs> exactly. Well, we, I think more importantly, we think that we are programming for the intellectual stimulation of it. Absolutely. Doesn't this and, and, seem to attract inventors? And so when we are not inventing, I think a lot of us feel like, oh, I'm not doing what I I'm not doing what is my passion, so I want to be inventing. Right. Well, and I think people will say, people who are listening might say, oh, well, this is just like the, the, the big evil Microsoft capitalist person that is, you know, is going to say something like that. This isn't a Microsoft perspective or a Scott Hanselman perspective. This is just the reality of why do we make the widgets we make? And that doesn't mean we should stop innovating. It just means we should know why we're making what we're making when we're making it. So this is why I, you know, I do corporate work to try to move the web forward during the day, but I got crazy stuff that I do at night and on the side, and this is why we do open source, to, to, to throw code spaghetti at the wall and see what will stick. I like that, code spaghetti. As opposed to spaghetti code? Right. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, awesome. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. 
No, I, I mean, I agree with you. We all, uh, we all want our jobs to be all about inventing and uh, innovating, but innovation is often about how to put things together well and maintenance. Like, I'm, I'm big into engineering practices, test-driven development, and pair programming and stuff, and not a lot of, not necessarily every developer uh, embraces those practices. And for me, that's all about, I want to do what's right for the company, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and remember that that innovation is not just inventing something that no one's ever thought about or putting things together in a way that no one's ever thought about, but it's also bringing concepts to people in a new way that they'd never thought about. Bringing TDD and Scrum to someone, even in 2013, can completely revolutionize their business. Right. Totally true. And that, that, that is a kind of innovation as well. You could innovate the way that they do um, trucking or you know warehousing. I think also that, that there's, there's innovation that's being done that is low level. Like, for example, we're doing some stuff around asynchronous JavaScript debugging that isn't, isn't sexy or fun to talk about. But if you look at like the comments on some of the new Visual Studio 2013 stuff, there's basically kind of two different kinds of people. There's the ones that are like, 2013, I just got 2012. How is this innovation? This sucks. You know, you guys, you guys are just making me pay again. And then someone else says, oh my goodness, there's asynchronous JavaScript debugging in 2013 and the call stacks understand multiple threads and, and promises. Like, holy crap, you've changed my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And that one feature, though, completely revolutionized someone's business because that's what they needed. That was the, that was the small feature, the, the happy little feature that changed it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that brings up kind of an interesting point. Uh, the migration migration of uh, Visual Studio to support JavaScript has been a fairly interesting one, I think. Yeah, I think it's kind of weird because I, I'm still up. My I don't know if I totally buy into the whole write Windows apps in JavaScript, but like the Mail application and the Calendar app on Windows 8, they're native apps, you know, and. By by native, I mean they really are native. Like they they run and they can call native APIs, and they they are real apps that happen to be written in JavaScript. And and they did that so that web developers that know JavaScript could go and say, oh, you know, I want to run an app and I want to put it into the App Store, and not in a phone gap kind of a way where it's like, oh, it's just a native frame around Internet Explorer kind of a way, but a a real app that can call any native API. I don't know if that's what I want from the web, but I think it's that, it's the ability to make native apps in Windows that has then caused the Windows folks to fix the, the, the underlying engines. So just like Node uses V8, uh, Windows 8 uses Chakra, the, the, the Internet Explorer JavaScript, uh, engine. And they've done so much tooling to make that like multi-core and support jitting. And all sorts of, you know, really cool asynchronous debugging stuff. And then that work that they did internally has bubbled up, which means now that web developers can do really cool, you know, debugging on with JavaScript and Visual Studio that, you know, has features that aren't available in debugging JavaScript in other ways. So when you write an application, a native application like you're talking about for Windows in JavaScript, is it mm-hmm. effectively then running on that JavaScript interpreter? So it's still interpreted, but it, it has API capabilities to reach into the regular runtime and do things that the other native apps can do? 
Yeah, so it's like when you have the JavaScript engine that's running in Internet Explorer, right? It has one kind of sandbox. It's it's the I'm running on the web and I'm downloading code from the web and I I live in that security context just like V8 and just like Chakra. They live inside of mm-hmm. the browser and they live in a web context and they communicate with a surface which is rendering HTML. When you're running a native app on on Windows that happens to be written in JavaScript, it can access the microphone and the GPS and the gyrometer and do, you know, talk to the file system and, and do stuff like any other app, like a C++ app or a C sharp app. And it's running in a different, a slightly different security context. And it can make declarations about what it wants to talk to, but it's using JavaScript APIs. So just like you can write a web app on the web in Chrome that says, I want to see your location. And then Chrome will say, this website wants to know your location, and you hit allow. That same kind of thing can happen in JavaScript in Windows 8, where it says, I want to use the camera. And then the operating system will say, this guy wants to use the camera. Are you okay with that? And you hit okay. And he's calling the same kind of low-level Win32 or what they call WinRT, Windows Runtime, APIs that a C++ or a C Sharp app can can write. Nice. That, that's really cool. Where are the documentation for that kind of stuff. If you search for WinJS, or if you go and download the free um, How to Build Windows Apps in JavaScript uh, Visual Studio Edition, I think it's called Visual Studio Express for Windows, you just go file new project and they'll make you one. And all the layout is done in responsive design, so it's all CSS. So like if you have different size screens or if you're snapping your Windows app from side to side, it's all uh, HTML and CSS. It's, it's pretty weird. Which is weird for me because I'm a web guy and I like to make web apps, but when I want my native apps, I write them in C sharp. So I'm, I'm still emotionally struggling with the, what does it mean to write a native app in HTML? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just like the guys at, at Mozilla have the Firefox OS, right? It's very similar where the native code you write is JavaScript and you talk to native services with JavaScript. It's a, it's a tough thing to get your head around. So, Scott, people have kind of wondered about how coupled Windows is to its to the to the browser to Internet Explorer. Is Windows 8 less coupled to IE or more coupled to the browser? Some people were hoping that the, the, the Windows platform would move away from coupling to the browser. It sounds like they're almost embracing it more now than they were in the past. Is that what do you can you tell us about, a little bit about that? Well, that's a, okay, that's a complicated thing. And the whole thing with the legal stuff in the, back in the day with Internet Explorer was pretty complicated because, and I'm not a lawyer, but the idea is this. Like when you looked at help, when you hit F1 in Windows and saw help, the help was delivered in a way that was rendered like HTML, but it was rendered inside a native application. Who's going to render that HTML, right? Is it Gecko? Is it Chromium? Those things didn't exist. 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago in Windows 95. So Internet Explorer was made as a component. So there's the Internet Explorer app, and then there's the HTML renderer component. It's called Trident. So you got Trident, Gecko, Chromium, uh, things like that, okay? Those components didn't exist in a reusable way, so they put one into Windows, and I think it's like mshtml32.dll. And when an app in Windows wants to render a little bit of HTML, they use that widget. And when you upgrade Internet Explorer, you get an updated version of that widget. 
that's a low-level system piece of functionality to uh, to render as HTML, to render some chunk of information as HTML. Now, it's it's easy to say, oh well, now that there's other things like the Chromium brow- you know browser controls and and Gecko, you should be able to swap that out. But the technical challenge of making it so that Windows itself could render HTML in Quicken and QuickBooks and all the other native apps out there, you know, and is is complicated to make it so you could literally swap out a fundamental part of the brain and make it optional. Like, you know, I want Adobe uh, Creative Cloud to render its HTML with Gecko. You know what I mean? That would imply that there is a uh, a shared interface and there's a shared contract and that would be possible. So, yes, there's Internet Explorer aspects, like the rendering of HTML baked in, but it's as a component. Chakra, the JavaScript engine, is is part of Windows. But uh, the browser, you can see, is still being upgraded. IE9, IE10, IE11 have all come out uh, with that engine and and things still things still work. So I, I can't give you an answer like yes or no. I can just tell you that every operating system, whether it be Safari and and on a Mac or whether it's Ubuntu, has some HTML rendering subsystem. And on Windows, for rendering HTML that's not inside of Firefox or Chrome, yes, it's it's part of IE. It's a it's a it's an one of the services IE provides. Does that answer your question? Yeah, kind of. It kind of does. I just I was more approaching it from the just the support that the the, the browser system is eventually going to get cut. That the operating system is eventually going to get support killed for it, and then it, that OS won't get any more IE updates as well because the IE updates is synonymous to operating system updates. And that's, so, that, well, that's like, well. let me think about that. So, for example, um, XP is going to lose support in 2014, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's like June of 2014. Uh, no, April of 2014. So Windows XP loses support. That means that when support is ended, there will be no new stuff coming out for XP. That doesn't mean that there won't be any new apps, but as far as like security updates and browsers and stuff, it's just not going to happen. But, you know, that's a a 12-year-old operating system. Sure. And and that's just how it's done, right? Same thing with, like, if I'm running, like, uh, you know, Dapper, am I still supported? It depends on whether I have the long-term support version of Dapper or the short-term one. Every operating system has an end of life. I don't think that I'm going to get Chrome, you know, Chrome 15 support today. Yeah. No, yeah. I was just, I, my my question is more to say, is uh, Windows 8 as coupled to the browser? It sounds like it's it's kind of the similar paradigm. Yeah, it's but, the same, I think. I mean, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. It's it's not fair to Windows 8 is no more coupled to the browser than X uh, than OS 10 is um, is coupled to Safari, or or the HTML renderer in Ubuntu is coupled. Like, yeah, you could pull it out, but then HTML wouldn't render. So, you know what I'm saying? In in applications that required that service. I think uh, one of uh, the the meat of Aaron's question might be in uh, 2000 and say 26, uh, Windows 8 gets sunsetted, right? Are the users that are still on Windows 8 going to be capped at IE? Or maybe at the by that point it's IE 40, you know, or maybe it's IE 20, whatever. Are they going to be capped and have to um, you know either move to a different browser 
to get whatever the latest web stuff is, or is there a is has Microsoft thinking of any strategy in place to say, well, the browser itself can continue to be upgraded even though the operating system has no has been so it's been cut off. So I I don't know. I don't speak for Microsoft. I don't speak for Windows. I don't speak for IE. And I neither work for Windows nor do I work for IE. I work for ASP.NET on the server side. That said, will Microsoft keep innovating a browser on a 12-year-old operating system? Probably no more than anyone else will. And just like my Mac Mini is stuck on Snow Leopard and I can't upgrade because it's stuck on Snow Leopard and I can't upgrade because they end-of-lifed it. So that's just how it is. So no, I, I don't think that 10 or 20 year old browser uh, operating systems are going to get new browsers. Okay, I've got another question about Microsoft's like attitude towards JavaScript. Right, I thought it was very interesting. The Microsoft went through a ton of effort to make Node work on Windows. Right, it wasn't a it wasn't a ton of effort, but yeah, there was work put into it. Certainly, yeah. A, a, a tons of relative term, right? So they went through a, they went through a bunch of effort to make sure that Node worked on Windows at a time when I think a lot of people were surprised that Microsoft said, "Hey, here's this web server that we didn't build that could com- theoretically compete with us. We're going to make sure it works for us." I don't know. I'm wondering if you have any particular insights about what that's about at Microsoft. Was that representative of a paradigm shift? Was it a natural thing for them to do? Okay. Well. So first, Node isn't a web server, but the, the people wanted to run Node on Windows, and they were being very vocal about it. People wanted to run Node in the cloud, in Azure, and they were being very vocal about it. We've got a really, really good, extremely performant web server in IIS, but it couldn't run Node. So we could certainly use Azure to spin up a bunch of Linux VMs and run it under Apache. But if you wanted to run, you know, a hundred web servers on a, on an Azure instance and 50 of them are node, you know, it would be nice if you were running them all managed under the same thing. So yeah, we, we work with the node guys and we work with Microsoft Open Tech, which is the open source arm of Microsoft. It's a, like another whole company, Microsoft Open Technologies. And they worked with the Node guys, and they're doing it. They're actually going to do a hackathon later this uh, fall to uh, get people uh, getting it even better on Node. Uh, Node works great on Windows, and IIS Node makes Node run great on IIS. Was it a paradigm shift? Eh, you know, I don't know. You guys are, I feel like you're digging for something that is, you're not going to find. There's not like a bunch of people sitting around going, <laughs> now if we can only get Node to run on Windows, we'll control the world. I mean, I mean, this, we, we're not nearly as evil as you think we are because we're not that organized. Being evil requires incredible amounts of organization. Uh, and we're just simply not that organized. A bunch of people at Microsoft noticed that a bunch of people in the world wanted Node to work on Windows. So we made it work on Windows. And, you know, if you want something else to work, we can do that too. I can get Node, PHP, Razor, ASP.NET, Classic ASP, all running in the same instance of IIS and up on the cloud in five minutes. I can show you how to do it. It's really easy. That was an example of because it was awesome. And if you want to run, you know, go and look at my talk from Node PDX. Uh, I live in Portland and PDX is the, the, the airport code for, um, for Node. So search for Hanselman Node PDX and you can see my talk where I 
you know, spun up a bunch of node instances and it did, did, explained how it works. I did it. I did the work on a Mac, but it, when it's running, when Node is running in Azure, it's running in Windows. Even if you're running Linux in Azure, you're still running on Windows. I, I think it's interesting that you, uh, you, you know, talking about Microsoft not being the evil empire that I think a lot of open source organizations try and make it out to be. And uh, no, there's evil parts, but oh well, not my, not my part. <laughs> you, you know, there, well, and there are definitely um, pieces to Windows that you know they're they're closed source because it's a company and they want to make money on their software. Yeah. Um, I, I also find it interesting. I think that was part of a battle that was waged by you know other open source products or projects that competed with certain uh, Microsoft projects. And so, yeah, well, I think there was a time at Microsoft a couple years ago, maybe five years ago, when I was just getting there and Phil Hack was getting there, where we would see an open source project and then feel the need to write the Microsoft version of that thing. Mm-hmm. And now we've got we've done all the work, we've done the legal work. And, you know, if, like when the JSON serializer thing happened and we're like, you know, our JSON serializer is not cutting it. Uh, we could like, well, we're going to need to make it better. I'm like, well, no, let's just use the better one. And I have said this a thousand times on stage and I'll say it again that I want people to go file a new project and pick what makes them happy and hit OK and use the framework that makes them happy. And I don't care. I don't care if it's not Entity Framework. If you want to use NHibernate or RavenDB or CouchDB, dude, knock yourself out. But ultimately, the dirty little secret about Microsoft is they want you to run on Windows, mm-hmm. right? Okay, well, you don't run Windows. You guys run Macs. Well, okay, but maybe you'll discover that Azure is actually a pretty kick-ass uh, cloud service, and you'll run your stuff in Azure, which is Windows. But, you know, do you feel the emotional pain that it causes you that to find that your code is running on Windows? Ultimately, if you're a business person, you'll notice it runs really well, and you won't really care. Yeah. So, um, Scott, I want to be a little bit clear here that I kind of was digging for something in the question about node support, and maybe this is only true from the outside. Dig dig on, then, brother. Dig on. But I do think that (laughs) from the outside, I have seen a paradigm shift. I mean, as I said before, I'm a I'm a .NET developer by uh, history. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's only been in the last year that I haven't been actively paid to do .NET development. But That's I, cool. I'm, I'm non-denominational. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there has been, at least from the outside, a paradigm shift at Microsoft that has basically said the open source community or the world, the open source world and tools there have a lot of really great stuff that's going to make Microsoft developers' jobs better if they have access to that. That's what I see. And I think that that node thing was, uh, and maybe that's not true. You know, you you said you work at ASP.NET, right? So mm-hmm. you might know at least what people talk about in meeting rooms. But it seems to from the outside that that's true, that that's happened. That Microsoft has basically given its .NET developers a lot more access to open source and more encouragement to use open source tools to enhance what they're doing in ASP.NET. And personally, I was really happy when that happened, and and mm-hmm. loved. And I think that that was a wise choice, but I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a, a, a choice that was consciously made. It was just something that happened naturally. Well, I don't think it happened naturally, but I mean, you know, Phil Phil Hack came and, and worked on MVC, and he pushed along with myself and Glenn Block and Mads Christensen and a list, a whole list of people who got to Microsoft about five years ago. And you know the whole story about how you boil a frog, right? Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You you 
you, you boil a frog by turning the heat up really slowly, and that frog doesn't notice it. But if you throw a frog in really quickly, the frog is going to jump out and go, what the heck's going on? So all these people showed up five, six years ago in this really hot pot, and we're just like, whoa, this is not okay. Like, why are we doing this, and why are we doing that? So we rejected it. We jumped out of the pot. And, and, and people like Phil and Glenn and Mads and myself and Scott Hunter and Scott Guthrie, and there's a list that goes on and on and on, all kind of came together at the, about the same time and started pushing hard. We pushed hard on legal. We pushed hard on Scott Guthrie. And we didn't just say we should do open source because it's cool or we should do open source because it's morally right. We said because it makes people happy and because it makes the products better and because it makes our jobs easier and just all the other reasons about open source that are rational. And Guthrie and the presidents and vice presidents said, okay, well, let's try to see what we can do. And over the last five years, it's actually working. I'm sure that if you asked a president or a vice president type, they would tell you it was a master plan. And I'm sure if you ask someone at the rank and file, they would tell you that it was an organic thing that happened. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But I know that I came to work on open source at Microsoft, and that's why I came here. And when it stops working, I will leave. So that's awesome. I love that. That's a great, great answer. I have one another question that I really want to get asked, and we might be running short on time here, so I want to kick it in here. Um, ASM, JS. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, it's really, you know, it, it essentially, from what I understand, it has to be written in C++. So anything that can get to C++ can essentially write ASM. I'm just curious if uh, there, we might in the future see a way to take C Sharp and turn it into ASM without going through a whole bunch of rigmarole. The philosophical issues around how ASMJS works, right? And, and for those that aren't familiar, the idea is, and you can actually go and see my talk about this. I would encourage people to check it out. It's actually a talk I'm really proud of. I show ASMJS in the talk uh, at Build, where the idea is that jo- JavaScript itself is a pervasive virtual machine now that doesn't require a plugin. So all of the things that we attempted to do when we brought Java and Serverlight and Flash to the browser have now been solved in that we have this great runtime that is available everywhere and has speed comparable to native code. So then ASM is this, is this low-level subset of JavaScript that I can compile to with, you know, other tools. So I could take something, uh, I could take a certain kind of C++ not just any old C++, right? But it has to be C++ that's, you know, targeting a certain... It has to be kind of CPU intensive. Like, for example, if I were going to take, like, a, a ray tracing engine, or I think the guys that took Unreal ported their stuff over into ASM in, in uh, three or four days. But to say I could port C Sharp, you probably won't be able to ever take idiomatic C Sharp. But there's things like Script Sharp that can already make JavaScript from, from C Sharp. There's certainly transpilers that can take C Sharp and turn it into JavaScript. But the problem isn't the idiomatic transpiling from one language to another or from one abstract syntax tree to another. It's the underlying libraries, right? If I've got C Sharp that's doing ray tracing, yeah, probably. I could totally see that. If I've got C Sharp that's doing, um, you know, data grid manipulation or talking to some internal Win32 library, well, if, you know, I can translate the language, but I can't translate the calls into the native code i think it'd be more i think you're going to see more stuff like typescript where 
TypeScript is what JavaScript would look like if a C-sharp developer designed it, just like CoffeeScript is what JavaScript would look like if a Ruby person designed it. And type annotations in JavaScript are more interesting to me than C-sharp compiling into JavaScript. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very interesting. All right. Well, let me, uh, let, me, let me put in one plug. I've got, a, I've got a new conference that I'm doing called Ango Brackets in Vegas in um, October at angobrackets.org. Go and check it out. Douglas Crockford is going to be our keynote, and I'll be there, and there'll be lots of great people talking about JavaScript. So I would really encourage people to come and uh, hang out with us in Vegas this October, angobrackets.org. Cool. Awesome. awesome. All right. Well, um, I think we're pretty close to the end of our time, but thanks for coming. We'll go ahead and do the picks, and then we'll wrap up the show. Joe, do you want to start us off with the picks? Uh, yeah, you bet. Uh, I'm going to make two picks. One of them's it's actually one and a half. The first one's only half a pick. I went and saw The Wolverine, the movie, and I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. So I'm going to half pick it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my other pick... I, I, I liked it. Did you? I liked it. I liked it. Yeah. Good. Well, that's good. That's good. I, I <laughs> it was it was not my favorite movie, but I did enjoy watching it, and I don't regret the money that I spent. There you so, go. Well said. Yeah. Um, my other pick was going to be the same thing I picked last week, and uh, that is NG Comp. Um, we've been doing a lot of work organizing NG Comp here, uh, Merrick and Aaron and I, and it's coming along nicely. We're really excited, and the buzz and excitement over the web seems to be just phenomenal. There's so many people that expressed interest in uh, attending. So we're really excited. The Angular team is excited uh, for it. And so, Scott, I actually want to issue an official invitation to come and attend NGConf. And uh, mm-hmm. it should be should be lots of fun. You know, we, we definitely want to um, appeal to the Microsoft type. So um, I've got a reserved seat for you, front row. Oh, cool. Well, January 16th in Salt Lake City. I hope that you're going to show all the new Angular support in Visual Studio. <laughs> that would be that something, we would, be something we need to show, yeah. Yeah, that's a great great point. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's, that's my picks. Awesome. Aaron, what are your picks? So I got back from Cancun last night. I'm going to pick Cancun, and it was awesome. Uh, Chichen Itza was insane. So I'm going to pick... Cancun. Uh, Joe took my second pick, which is ng-conf, because um, it's gonna it's gonna be a really fun conference. I think for a lot of reasons, it's the same weekend as um, the Sundance Film Festival. And if anyone's interested about uh, about ng-conf or get, getting updates on it, head over to the website at ng-conf.org, and you can put your email address in and get updates. But also. I'm going to pick the ng-conf Twitter handle, which is something that we just kind of brought up this week, ng-conf, at ng-conf. And that's, that's where a lot of our updates will come out and where the call for speakers will go and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, I'll go ahead and jump in with a few picks. Um, I don't know if I picked these last week. I guess I can uh, double check. Anyway, um, I'm going to pick them again just in case. Um, I've been putting together this uh, Ruby on Rails mentorship thing. It's kind of a course, but it, you know, so there is instruction and things along with um, the coaching and stuff. It's called Rails Ramp Up. And um, one of the tools that I'm putting the videos up with is called Wistia. And it's it's got a lot of terrific features. It does all of your, uh, um, 
it tells you how far in people have watched it. Uh, it also uh, allows you to put a call to action so people can sign up for your newsletter off of the video. And the other thing is, is since these are uh, paid private access videos, um, I can set them up so that they're not public and they just mount in or embed into the, the, um, course software that I'm using. So, uh, I, I'm really, really liking Wistia. And, uh, I think, I think that's pretty much all I have this week. Um, Scott, what are your picks? Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to have picks. Oh, you didn't? But uh, since we're supposed to have uh, picks, I will make up picks. Uh, my first pick is uh, the new Mumford & Sons video uh, featuring Jason Bateman, Ed Helms, Jason Sudeikis, and Will Forte. I would encourage uh, you to check that out. And my second pick is, I don't know if you guys heard, but Beyonce cut her hair, so I'm freaking out. <laughs> okay. She did. She cut her hair. It's short now. Like It's like this is the hair that defined a generation, people. And it's, it's been cut. She has like a pixie cut now. And I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself today. I may have to just punch out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have, and you guys have no idea what to do with that. I love that it's complete silence. This is how we're going to end this talk in a very uncomfortable silence, which I think is okay. Yep. I, I guess we will end it here. We'll catch you all next week.